All right. I hope you had a delightful lunch, and let's pray. And then I'm going to finish a little bit on protocols, of initial protocols, and then we're, I'm going to introduce you to Julie and how our church has ministered to Julie. But let's pray first. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel to change lives. Thank you that your word through truth, we can be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And I want to thank you again for Julie's testimony and how she has grown to love you more and to trust you more through this horrific circumstance. Lord, I pray for her husband that he would repent and that he would see the path of destruction that he is on and would see that you are his only hope. Um, so, Lord, we commit this next hour to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me wake this back up again. So we were on initial protocols. So have that sheet out. And let me go. just continue to go down through these. So I've already talked about why it's not marriage counseling. If you have more questions about that when we get to the question and answer time, uh, we can talk about that. Uh, we've divided point B. So it says, consult with your advisor. Uh, now that we have 40-some uh, counselors, we've divided everybody into teams of three to five uh, because I could not oversee 40 counselors directly. It was a desperation move. When we got to about 28 counselors, I said, I can't, do a, I can't be consulting with 28 counselors every time they have a question about their counseling cases. So every three to five counselors have an advisor. So that's what that means. And they, they're supposed to talk to their advisor if they suspect that it's a domestic abuse case. Um, I've already talked about imminent danger. Imminent danger is statements like, I'm going to kill you. If I hear, you're going to be sorry if you tell anyone. That's a little bit nebulous, but I'm I want to take the threat seriously. If uh, there's a gun in the house, you definitely need to take the threat seriously. And then uh, use the Council of Three procedure if you're uncertain about what to do. Um, we train our counselors, point D, that if it's domestic abuse, but it's not imminent danger, to call the Florida Domestic Violence Hotline and to report it um, with consent. So that sec the second line says, but you need informed consent. If Now, here's this would be a really important point. We call it Department of Child and Family Services, so Child Protective Services. What's it called in Michigan? It's child Protective Services. So <clears throat> if children have witnessed the violence, you have not only a 911 call, but you also have a Child Protective Services call to make. Uh, and they may not communicate with each other. So don't count on the fact that if you call the police that they're going to call Child Protective Services or if you call Child Protective Services, that they're going to call the police. Did you realize the government doesn't always work efficiently? <laughs> so uh, don't assume that they're going to be communicating with each other. And that became very important, as you're about to hear with Julie's case. Uh, we learned that kind of the hard way. We didn't realize we were supposed to be informing Child Protective Services. Um, and it'll become obvious why. Uh, when you hear Julie's uh, case study. Next point's really important. Many of these turn into divorce proceedings, and so you need documentation, and one way you can minister to the person is get documentation, but leave your opinions out. Um, that became important for us because this guy was a member of our church. He was threatening us with legal action for slander, and so we, um, we consulted with our lawyer, and our lawyer said, well, he can't slander you if it's just facts. So just write the facts down and leave your opinion out of it. Don't say the guy's an idiot in your notes. Don't call him the Taliban. Just leave your, 
You just leave your opinion out of the thing and just say on this date, he did such and such. We had these witnesses. So remember Sergeant Friday, just the facts, ma'am. So just write down on this date, at this time, this occurred, these people were present. Here's the history, how long it's been going on, and you're helping her to accumulate what she needs for court. Even if it doesn't lead to divorce, she's still going to need documents for court for injunctions, um, etc. One of the first, and just so you get the timing, a lot of this is happening in one session. So when we find out this is domestic abuse, a lot of what I've just described is all happening in a one hour meeting with the lady, including what I'm about to cover, which is develop a safety plan. You can find, if you just typed into Google, safety, domestic abuse safety plan, all kinds of things are gonna pop up. Uh, we uh, developed our own, and it's about a three page document. What it has her think through, what documents do you need to accumulate? Uh, do you have a go bag ready and is it hidden in the house? Uh, what are you gonna do with the children? Who's gonna watch the children? So those are all parts of a safety plan. And you can find a generic safety plan online. We have a church security team and anytime there is a restraining order on a man, uh, our church security team wants to know. So we, we've, you know, we train our counselors to inf inform security. And then start thinking about a safe house. If there's imminent danger and she's being threatened, uh, we've developed a whole protocol for safe houses and we have about four or five families in our church that are just on standby and they're willing to be a safe house at a moment's notice. Um, if you develop a safe house procedure, think of the statement during World War II, loose lips sink ships. Uh, nobody else in the church needs to know who the safe houses are. And so my associate pastor, we were actually the safe house for Julie, but the associate pastor asked me, well, where's she going? And I said, I looked at him and smiled and said, you don't need to know. Um, it's a need to know basis. And the more people that know, the more easily that information could leak out. So we keep that very quiet of where the safe house is. Okay, now, uh, the last page, and I'm not gonna cover this at all, this is just for your edification. This was written by our full-time female counselor and things she learned by counseling the woman, Julie, that you're about to hear about. And there is a lot of wisdom in this page. I would urge you to think it through because a, a lot of hours went into that one little page there. And it's things, uh, not just by dealing with Julie, but uh, numerous other women. And these are just some of her takeaways from working with women that have been in domestic abuse situations. And I hope you benefit uh, from, from her wisdom. Her name is Josie, and she does an absolutely wonderful job. She's been discipling women for almost 30 years, and was uh, very blessed to have her as our full-time female counselor. Let me switch now, and we're going to talk about the actual case study. The terminology mega trauma, that's Julie's terminology for what she's been through. And you're going to be hearing as I go through this, maybe you've heard the terminology in recent uh, years in our culture, trauma-informed counseling. Anybody familiar with that terminology, trauma-informed counseling? So as a biblical counselor, anytime I hear about secular theories of counseling, I want to evaluate them biblically. And so you're going to hear some overlap here about trauma counseling and how I think about that biblically, because she's definitely been through trauma. And that's very interesting to think about trauma from a biblical uh, perspective. This is Julie, and she gave me permission to show you that, that picture. Uh, when she sent that a few months ago, she said, we're finally smiling. And it was uh, just a beautiful picture of her and her girls and um, about 
a month later is when she, or a month and a half later, she sent a picture where she had just broken out in hives. So this has been an up and down situation because of what she has been through over the last few years. I have some goals for this presentation. I want to demonstrate to you that we have a complete counseling system and that being a biblical counselor, I don't need to syncretize with secular systems. I can develop out of the Bible a complete counseling system. So as a biblical counselor, I don't integrate with the secular psychologies. I don't use psychology. I want to build my whole system right out of the Bible for what's going on and how do you help people. Uh, we have taught for years, about 50 years now, biblical counseling has taught the sufficiency of Scripture. And I hope that you hear right now the sufficiency of Scripture, not just because the Bible says that it's sufficient, like Peter says, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness uh, in God's exceeding and precious promises, but that you'll see that the Scripture claims sufficiency because we have everything that a counseling system, even in the secular world, every ingredient that the secular world would say, that's a counseling system, we have that in the Bible. And that's what I want to seek to show you, is that we have a complete counseling system. I want to show you the, the methodology that we've used to help her and some key passages of Scripture. I especially want to highlight what the counselor needs to be like. And I've already told you a little bit about uh, Josie and my high regard for her, but Josie has just been amazing. Uh, imagine yourself dealing with a woman going through mega trauma, and what would you need to be like? If you were going through mega trauma, what would you want the counselor to be like? So think golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. How would you like to be treated if you're the one that's being beaten uh, by a spouse? Uh, what would you want the demeanor of the counselor to be like? And Josie has just excelled in, in every way. And then I want to cover the, the protocols that we've uh, used with, with Julie. For years, I've used the acronym STORY to write up a case study. And STORY, I do know how to spell STORY, uh, but this is my way of writing up what's going on in the situation so let me tell you Julie's story a little bit to orient you to what's going on. And you're, you're already a little bit familiar with her. There's a wide range of what would be called domestic abuse. This is on the extreme end. This is an extreme domestic abuse case where she's been beaten multiple times, raped by her husband, uh, just extreme domestic abuse. Uh, bruised, choked, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about him. I have this in the, the last statement. I, another way to think of him is the hawk. He's just this buff. He's about this tall, and he's just this big, strong guy. He mixes steroids with alcohol, so he lifts weights. And to get himself balked up, he takes steroids, but he also drinks alcohol. And when you put alcohol and steroids together, that's not a really good combination. And he has a really short temper in those moments. And so I, another way I've thought of him is like the green incredible hawk and he just loses it and he gets angry with her and he chokes her, etc. There have been multiple instances of adultery. The S for a story stands for the situation. So I'm giving you a little bit of the background of the situation. They're both in their late 30s. There's four children involved as you saw. He has uh, committed adultery uh, numerous times. One time he got caught on live TV. He thought he could get away with it, but he was at a Florida State football game, and uh, the TV panned right by him and stopped right on him, and all kinds of family members saw him with this other woman at a Florida State game, and so she confronted him, like, who was that woman? All kinds of people saw you on TV with that other, that other woman. So as my mother used to say to me, be sure your sins will find you out. Um, because of being beaten, they were separated for her safety. Uh, the divorce proceedings are still current. An interesting ingredient to this is her mother was also in an abusive situation. 
and her mother puts pressure on her to stay in the marriage. Uh, I don't, I can't quite figure out the mom, uh, but the mom is putting pressure on her to stay in the marriage. And you'll see a little bit later that Julie says, I can't understand why my mother didn't protect me. What she meant by that is why did my mom let me grow up in a home where she was being beaten and I had to watch it when, when I was growing up? One of a main concern for Julie through the last couple of years has been I need to protect my girls. And I don't want them to see what goes on with me. The T of story is her thinking. She believes, she has believed, she doesn't believe this as much, but like he has some kind of supernatural power. <laughs> he can always see me. Like, I can't get away from him. I can be a Panera thinking that I'm working on my own and he just shows up. It's like he's God, is what she thinks in her mind. I can't get away from this man. He is spying on me, and he's, it's like he has secret cameras, and he can see me all the time. Now, is that true? It's not true, but that's what she's thinking. It seems like he knows where I am all the time. One of the intrusive thoughts that goes through her mind regularly is, I brought this on myself. I'm a failure. Why is she a failure? I should have been able to please him. I should be able, uh, sh you'll see that she's about to admit I can be a control freak. I should have been able to figure this out. I should have been able to get this situation under control, but I'm a failure. Then she thinks I've been abandoned. I've been betrayed. This man was supposed to love me. This is the man I've had children with, but he's betrayed me. He's betrayed our marriage. My girls have a horrible future ahead of them. And I described that in the last session a little bit about the girl's future. And I believe that's true. Uh, we've been urging her to get counseling for her girls because her girls need to understand, one of my burdens for her girls is that they understand that not every man is this way. Uh, when they were living with us, uh, when we were their safe house, I was trying to model before them being a very gentle husband, trying to model godly leadership. I would, it was really a blessing to me because uh, we have three extra bedrooms and we told them, you can take that whole side of the house. There's three bedrooms, two bathrooms, you just take that whole side of the house. And, but they wanted to all, for security, for feeling secure, they wanted to all stay in one room. So mom and the daughters all stayed in one room together. And I went back one night to lead devotions with them. I just wanted to sing some hymns with them and read some scripture with them because I wanted to model, here's what a Christian home is like. Uh, you can have a peaceful home. And I went, Rose and I went to stand in the doorway to sing with them and read some scripture. And she was already singing with them and reading scripture with them. That's just the type of woman that she's become. Of I, She's really burdened to disciple her girls because she's concerned about their future. And I'll be saying, uh, more about that in a little bit. That's why she says, why didn't my mother protect me? Uh, my mom let me grow up in an abusive environment. I must protect the girls. I've already talked about that. She also has struggled with the thinking, if I don't let him do to me what he wants sexually, I'm not going to get food for the girls. Uh, those are the kind of things that are going through her mind on a regular basis. How are others involved? So that's the O of story. The girls hate their father. She cries about that. She has been so moved by the gospel. Last, coming up on a year ago, so last November, he had a horrible accident and he was in intensive care. Well, you would think this woman would be jumping up and down with glee that, oh, justice is happening and he's getting what he deserves. You know what she did? She broke down and cried because she's so concerned about his soul. She called the girls together <clears throat> and said, girls, we need to pray for your father. He's been involved in a horrible accident. And the girls said, no, we don't want to pray for him. And she started crying. Uh, she, she told me, I am so concerned that they're going to be bitter at their father. I, want, I don't want my girls living with bitterness. I want them to forgive him because I know how much I've been forgiven. Isn't that great? It's an amazing testimony of God's grace. The old, how have others been involved? The oldest daughter heard her mother being raped. Uh, she 
knew that dad, so there was a restraining order. He went and got a key made to the house. She had had all the locks changed in the house. <clears throat> he went and got a key made, broke the restraining order, came into the house, and uh, was attacked his wife at like two o'clock in the morning. The daughter heard the door, so the oldest daughter, and who's the one who ended up calling uh, the police initially to, to have him arrested when he, one of the times when he beat his uh, wife. She was, the oldest daughter was so concerned that she was actually laying out in the hallway because she was trying to figure out how can I protect mom? So the 12 or 13 year old daughter was hearing what was going on in the bedroom. That's an absolutely horrible situation. Uh, this case has dominated my life. Uh, my role, I've been, as one of the pastors, I've been trying to minister to Julie, but I've been trying to minister to the counselor as well because this has taken a toll on our counselor emotionally. So part of my job is to keep Josie going and to encourage Josie and to consult with Josie how to handle the situation and then to meet with Julie from time to time. Uh, this has, we have, we've had a lot, a lot of cases over the last couple of years, but this has been our top shepherding issue in our church for a number of reasons. Uh, she's had to have multiple lawyers. Lawyers have uh, been impacted. His lawyers, uh, he's so disgusting that one of his lawyers just recently fired him and said, I can't deal with you anymore. I don't even want to be involved with you anymore, even though I'm getting paid. Uh, you're just a despicable person. I can't be involved with you any longer. The police have been impacted. Uh, she had a, her own police officer on speed dial. That's how intense the case has been from time to time. I've already told you about our house being a safe house. Uh, the house that they were renting, uh, she sold everything in the house. He found out that she was selling everything in the house <clears throat> and there's a lot of details I could tell you about that, but she sold everything, even some of his possessions, and he just went berserk. And they were renting the house. He went into the house, and he destroyed the inside of the house. He, it was a rental, and he ripped the door off the refrigerator. He punched holes in the walls, and uh, he just did thousands of dollars of damage. So lots of people have been impacted by this. How is she responding? So that's the R of story. What are her responses and reactions? Uh, she has flashbacks. She has dealt with panic attacks. Imagine yourself in this situation. What would you be dealing with? Uh, she has problems sleeping. Uh, she broke out in hives, a lot of worry. But it's been a blessing to also see her growing in peace, growing in trust, and growing in her confidence in the Lord. Her, the first E of story is emotions, extreme fear and anxiety, and I've already talked about what's going on in her body, uh, nightmares, hives, etc. The last E of story is expectations. So what are her desires? Two main heart themes that she's realized going through this is that she's a huge people pleaser, especially related to her husband. And I just want his approval. I don't want to be rejected by this man. I've given my life to him. I've given my body to him. We've had children together. This is the man that's supposed to love me and adore me. I want his acceptance, even if it means that it hit, he hits me. Uh, you can hear the distorted thinking in that. So fear of man, what the Bible would call people-pleasing or fear of man, has been a main heart theme for her. Maybe if I work harder, I can get him to love me and to trust me and not hurt me. That's been kind of her, her thinking. Mix that with another heart theme of, I can be a control freak. Notice these are quote marks because that's what she would say about herself. I have a plan. I can figure this out. Now mix that with being a people pleaser. I'm a people pleaser and I can figure this out. And you get, a, you get the sense of what's going on inside of, of Julie. As a biblical counselor, <clears throat> I operate from what's called a presuppositional perspective, biblical presuppositions. And if you're 
uh, familiar with apologetics approaches, you know that biblical counseling has been built on what's called Vantillian presuppositionalism. And I could go off on a tangent about that right now, because there's a lot in the biblical counseling world uh, that's going on related to presuppositionalism. And for the geeky people in the room, I'll just get you going down a path and uh, be thinking about the doctrine of common grace and Herman Bavinck's view versus Mantill's view of presuppositionalism. So I'm just whetting your appetite and uh, you go do the research. But there's a lot going on in the biblical counseling world related to those issues. I believe in biblical presuppositionalism. What that means is I start with biblical eyeglasses to think about every counseling case. The ultimate presupposition is that there is a true and living God. We believe in the Trinity. Everything is from him, through him, and to him, Romans eleven thirty six. So I want to think about this of how in the world could this be in Julie's life from him? I believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, so nothing comes into my life unless it comes through the hand of God first, from him, through him. The Lord can sustain Julie going through this, to him. She can live as an act of worship to the Lord even though she's going through intense suffering. Everything's from him, through him, and to him. Here are some of my other presuppositions biblically. And it would be hard for me to overstate how important these seven S's are. We're living in a culture that loves counseling theories. Did you know that there's probably about 600 different counseling theories operating in our culture right now? Um, from cognitive behavioral therapy to dialectical behavioral therapy to trauma-informed theory to um, my wounded inner child to the biological model. There are just hundreds of theories in our culture. How do I think about counseling theories? I want to think about them through biblical lenses. So what are my biblical lenses? Every counseling theory has a source of authority. I'm getting a little technical here, but we call that epistemology. My source of authority, you guessed it, is the Bible. So the Bible is my epistemology. It's my source of authority. If you follow Freud, guess who the source of authority is? Freud. <laughs> He's his own source of authority. It's based on his own observations. I am blessed to have the God of the universe speak into my world and tell me what's wrong with humans. Uh, God designed humans. He knows what went wrong with humans. And he has, this, this book has the best description of humans of any psychology book. Uh, it has a complete anthropology. What's wrong with humans and how do they change? I mean, that's really at the core of what's going on in the Bible is what went wrong. Now, how do you help people change? So I have an epistemology. Every counseling theory has an epistemology. Every counseling theory has a view of etiology. Etiology is what's the source of the problem? What's causing the problem? You don't need a counseling system if you don't have a problem to solve. So every counseling theory is trying to solve a problem. Right now, the one that is in vogue is called trauma-informed theory. If you've not read this book, I'd urge you to read it because it is a cultural phenomenon right now. It's called The Body Keeps the Score by a man named Bessel van der Kolk. In many ways, I'm just going to be real blunt with you, it's full of baloney. Uh, there's all kinds of claims that he makes. There's another guy named Dr. Michael Scheringa, who's a psychiatrist who studied PTSD, and he takes each one of Bessel van der Kolk's 42 claims and evaluates them scientifically and finds out that he says that van der Kolk's fails all 42 of his claims that's in the book. But that book is a cultural phenomenon. It has sold over 2 million copies. It has been on the New York Times bestseller list for something like the last five years continuously. Uh, in the top 10 or the top five for uh, a number of those years. So the body keeps the score. Anytime a book sells that many copies, as someone who wants to be an informed Christian, I want to understand what my culture is thinking. 
and what's going on in my culture. So I'd urge you to read it, but evaluate it and think about it biblically. So he has a theory. He says it's the brain. Uh, the etiology is the brain. Uh, you have trauma that's going on in your brain and the body has, keeps the score. And I'll talk about that a little bit later about all the brain theories right now. Then once you figure out what the problem is, every counseling system pro uh, proposes a solution. So once you figure out the etiology, you propose a solution. Or as a friend of mine would say, a solution. So what's the solution to the problem? Once you figure out the solution, you develop a methodology to carry out your solution. For us, I would use the word sanctification. We believe in the doctrine of sanctification and that people can grow and change. So I want my methodology to grow right out of my, I'm, getting, I'm being technical with you here, I want my methodology to grow right out of my epistemology. I don't want to adopt a secular methodology that doesn't match my epistemology. I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, we can talk about it during the question and answer time. I want to be, con in a, the simple way I can put it is, I want to be consistent within my model. I say, this is my epistemology. It proposes a solution. Now I want to develop my methodology right out of my epistemology, right out of what I see as my source of authority. And you're going to see how I'm how we did that with Julie. Every counseling system has support systems. There are schools that teach that theory like cognitive behavioral therapy or Skinner's behavioral uh, psychology or Maslow's need hierarchy. You can go to schools and study those systems. There's um, mental health services. There's support systems. Well, what's our support system? It's the local church. Uh, we have an amazing support system. Uh, in the local church. The majority of churches underestimate the impact they could be having on their culture. Uh, the typical local church uh, has much more ability to impact people and culture than what they, they realize, especially when you start a counseling center and you start frontline, you start dealing with people and their problems. Every counseling system has a view of what's the role of the counselor. Sigmund Freud, if you study him, what do you think of? Couches <laughs> and dream analysis. Uh, Aaron Beck's cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a whole different role. The, the counselor is more of a coach. Uh, Rogerian counseling, the counselor is a mirror. You're not supposed to be directive. You're supposed to just reflect back to people. Every counseling system has a role of a counselor. Well, do we see in the Bible what the role of a counselor is supposed to be? Yes, we're disciplers, we're shepherds. Uh, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to care for people and disciple them. And then every counseling system defends itself. Uh, you're actually hearing apologetics right now. I am doing apologetics for a biblical counseling system. And what I'm about to unfold for you is to, I'm trying to demonstrate to you the superiority of our counseling system. I'm doing apologetics. I'm trying to defend biblical counseling and why biblical counseling is a better approach for Julie than secular models of, of trying to help her. So our source of authority, we want to be totally biblical. Romans 12.2 tells me not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Can I learn from secular trauma theory? Absolutely. Should I believe everything in secular trauma theory? That would be naive if I believed everything in secular trauma theory. Bessel van der Kolk makes all kinds of claims in his book about the brain. I am blessed with a friend who studies neuropsychology at East Carolina University. He heads the PhD program in neuropsychology. So any neuroscience questions I have, I just call my friend Eric. And so I'm reading Bessel van der Kolk and I'm going, okay, that's not, doesn't sound like the kind of stuff Eric's taught me. Eric and I have been talking about neuropsychology for probably 15 years. I went and did part of my sabbatical, <clears throat> a sabbatical from master's. I went and uh, stayed at his home and studied neuropsychology with him just for 
because I like it, and uh, <laughs> plastered him with questions. The poor guy, I kept him up till 10, 11 o'clock at night just asking him neuropsychology or neuroscience questions because all kinds of claims are being made out in the world about the brain. The brain did everything right now. And so I would read to him a statement from Bessel van der Kolk or send it to him, and he'd just write back, nope. <laughs> That's not how this works. Um, my source of authority is the Bible. I don't want to be conformed to the world. I want to be transformed by the renewing of my, my mind. You have to have confidence in the Bible. And I already read the David Pallison quote. <clears throat> how should we think about the trauma that Julie's been through? So I'm starting with biblical thinking. I'm not starting with secular thinking and then saying, okay, what is that biblically? I can do that, but it's better to start biblically and people who are going through deep suffering in the Bible, what happens with them? Well, you start seeing Julie, sleeplessness, they're fleeing for their lives. I mean, you can think of the context in the Bible. What goes on with people who are going through calamity in their lives? They're sleepless, Psalm 42. They're running for their lives, early church, when they're being persecuted. They're struggling with their thought lives. They're feeling betrayed. David, Psalm 62, he felt very betrayed in Psalm 62. Are you hearing Julie in that? This is normal. This is what the Bible says happens to people going through trauma in their lives. They're asking agonizing questions. They have extreme anxiety and fear, and they struggle with bitterness and, and anger. That's Psalm 73. Uh, these are normal human responses to deep affliction. The term that I, you see the term up there, deep affliction. So the culture uses the term trauma. I've started using the term deep affliction to describe there's suffering in the Bible, and then there is intense suffering in the Bible. There is trials in the Bible, and then there's calamity in the Bible. What happens when people are going through calamity? Uh, Julie has been going through calamity in her life. Uh, just to tell you how the Bible has ministered to her a little bit, she told me that one of the things that keeps her going, and the secular world can't even compare to this, one of the things that keeps her going is the hope that she has for heaven. One day, all this pain and suffering is going to be over with. The secular psychologists don't believe that at all. There is no future. I mean, you're just living for here and now, and you're trying to cope, trying to deal with your pain and problems now, but <clears throat> we have a future, we have a hope. And that's one of the, the blessings for Julie is to think someday I'm gonna be with my Lord in heaven and all this pain and suffering is going to be over. What were some of the key biblical principles that guided our counseling with Julie? Of course, the glory of God. How do we lovingly, graciously help her see that God has a purpose for this. Johnny Erickson Tata says, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Uh, you know Johnny, right? So if anybody knows about pain and suffering, it's Johnny Erickson Tata. So God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So Julie, how can you live for the glory of God in the midst of your calamity? Uh, I can guarantee to you that the secular psychologies are not going to cover that uh, with her. The book of Proverbs was very meaningful for her. And this is all from her, by the way. I did not make this up. So I asked her, what were the biblical principles that helped you the most? And this is what she sent to me. Proverbs, because she was living naive, thinking, I guess this, her, she saw abuse with her mom and... Now I'm in an abusive relationship. Maybe this is just what marriage is. And Proverbs, our biblical counselor using Proverbs helped her to see, you know, here's healthy relationships, here are unhealthy relationships. So the Lord used Proverbs to help her a lot. The gospel has moved her deeply. I need to forgive because of how much I've been forgiven. Because of the gospel, I know I'm loved by the Lord, even though I'm going through deep suffering I know I'm loved by the Lord. I am in Christ. That, her identity in Christ, um, that's, that was a huge concept for her. I am not, I'm not going to allow domestic abuse victim to be my label. I am going to be in Christ. I am a Christian and I am in Christ. That is going to be my identity. 
Scripture is what gives me wisdom because I've been incredibly naive. Like Psalm 19 says that the law of the Lord makes the simple wise. And she has recognized I have been a really naive person and I need to grow in wisdom. I need to have a big view of God. If I'm going to survive, I have to, under, I have to study and understand who my God is. So our counselor has helped her develop this incredible theology of the greatness and majesty of God. And I need to grow. I can be, I need to be renewed in the spirit of my mind, progressive sanctification. I need to have disciplined thinking. Turn with me to Isaiah 26. And there are some in the broader biblical counseling world right now that are saying that the Bible does not the Bible gives us the generalities, but psychology gives us the specifics. And uh, <clears throat> I take exception to that. So Isaiah 26, these are beautiful verses, especially when you remember the context. Isaiah 26, 3 to 5. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Now let me stop and talk about context. Some of you guys in seminary, you wonder, why do you study chronology? <laughs> it's like, why do I have to study chronology? Why do I have to know dates and why things happened? Well, let me explain why. You know what was going on during Isaiah 26? The Assyrian captivity. It was about to happen or had already started. Well, what were the Assyrians like? The Assyrians were nasty. They plucked out eyes, they cut out tongues, they chained people together, they hooked you through the nose to the person in front of you in the slave train. If there was anybody that could understand calamity and trauma, it would be people during the Assyrian captivity. So if you understand the context of this, that makes these promises from God just jump off the page that even in the midst of horrific calamity, you can be at perfect peace. Doesn't that sound astounding? The steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. I could think of five, ten homework assignments to give someone going through trauma just from those verses of how to help them when they're not sleeping well. How to help them, and I'm going to show you some of the homework assignments that Julie has done, and I'm going to show you some pictures of what, what her house looks like, how she has kept scripture in front of her uh, to just fill her mind with, with scripture. Uh, she realized, I don't have a disciplined mind. I need to work on not letting uh, my mind control me. There's a classic book on depression by uh, the physician pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it's called Spiritual Depression. And in that book, he was a physician and self-taught pastor, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the problem with most Christians when they're going through depression is that they believe what their mind is saying rather than telling their mind what to believe. And so Julie has learned, has had to learn to fight with her mind and not believe that everything that's going through her mind is truth. So disciplined thinking. When I have intrusive thoughts, so I have an intrusive thought. He's going to break into the house tonight when I'm asleep. I'm going to turn it into worship. I'm going to use those as opportunities to remind me to pray for the girls. I'm going to use that as a reminder to worship. We all need to worship more. Think about singing worship songs out loud and what it does. We've taught her to sing worship songs out loud. Well, what does that do? Don't just read the hymn or the worship song. Sing it out loud. Think what that does. First of all, you're worshiping, and we all need to worship more. Number two, it dominates your brain. So if your brain, you're hearing your voice sing, those intrusive thoughts are not going to be dominating your thinking as much. I call that turning up the volume. Uh, I've got to turn up the volume because my brain drives me crazy sometimes. So I turn on the music and I sing out loud while I'm drowning out my intrusive thoughts. Third, I'm thinking about truth because I'm thinking about the words of the hymn. <laughs> So singing out loud accomplishes three very strategic things. So we've taught Julie to worship. Sing out loud when you're having those intrusive thoughts. Use those intrusive thoughts as reminders to worship, to pray for the girls, etc. Um, 
And then she developed what we called a, a thank list. I'm going to use any time I have these intrusive thoughts. My brain is telling me this. My inner person is telling me this. I'm going to be thankful for this. And so instead of allowing my flesh to have a victory, I'm going to use those moments as an opportunity to become a thankful person. Remember my S's. So that I was just trying to demonstrate my epistemology there of how do I use Scripture as my source of authority. Now, what's the problem? Well, if there's anything that demonstrates the sin nature, it's the Taliban, right? So this guy, I mean, he shows what's wrong with humanity and what has happened to humans, that a man would do this to his wife shows total depravity. I mean, this just shows the inherent sin nature. There's a lot of research right now about uh, neurological research about people living in prolonged stress and what it does to the brain. I want to urge you, if you read that and you read Bessel van der Kolk, you don't have to be intimidated by that at all. Now, what Bessel van der Kolk says is, and it's, I think it's on page four, so it's very easy to find, page six, something. It's really early in the book. He says something like this, because the brain has been damaged by trauma, we remove all moral responsibility from the patient. Think through the implications of that. So my brain made me do it, so I'm not responsible for my behavior. That's what some are claiming with the neurosciences. Well, that can't be biblical thinking. The way I think about this is, does stress, does prolonged stress, combat veterans, etc., does that do something to the brain? Absolutely. I mean, my body is reflecting my soul, and my soul is reflecting my body. We're just, we're psychosomatic beings. So you would, you would expect a guy who perpetually looks at pornography, you would expect there's something different going on in his brain. But here's the good news. Neuroscience has also found what's called plasticity. And there is something called neurogenesis. How does neurogenesis, the brain is an amazing organ. It can create new neurons. Plasticity can occur. Well, we've been saying that for years as biblical counselors. You can put off the old man and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Uh, I don't have to allow my brain to dictate the way I'm going to live my life. A Christian principle, Johnny Erickson Tata has taught this for years. We do not believe in biological determinism. So Johnny has said for years, my body, my biology, does not have to dictate my future. She is extremely handicapped, quadriplegic, but she runs a worldwide ministry. So she has really bad biology, but she says we don't believe in biological determinism. So even if there is something going on biologically, I can teach people, no, you can be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You don't have to be stuck. Neuro, using the technical terms, neurogenesis can take place uh, because of the science of brain plasticity. Uh, there's a lot of ways that sin is showing itself. What's the solution? She gives very clear evidence of saving faith. Uh, you read the book of 1 John, and the book of 1 John is... You know, evidences of true saving faith. She's showing those. I mean, she's even loving her enemy. This man who, love your enemies and do good to those who despitefully use you. That's Julie with her husband. It's absolutely amazing, her attitude toward her husband. Why is that? If you ask her why, she would say, how can I remain bitter at him when I know how much I've been forgiven by the Lord? She's been deeply moved by Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. He claimed to be a believer. He was even baptized in our church. Do I believe that he could be set free from this? Absolutely. I believe that that power is in the gospel. He could be set free. He doesn't want to be set free right now. We've called him to repentance, and uh, he uh, does not want to be set, set free. How has sanctification, so our methodology, how has sanctification been shown? And are you getting my argument here? I'm trying to show we have a complete counseling system. I don't need to integrate with the secular world and their trauma theories and trauma methodology. I want to build my methodology right out of the pages 
of Scripture with the way that I help people. While understanding what, they're, what, understanding what the world is teaching. These are some of the things we've helped her do with our methodology. Uh, live out truth. Discipline your mind with uh, truth. Fight fear and anxiety with truth. Grow in wisdom. Rely on your church. I'm about to talk about that more. If, if Julie was standing here and I said to her, what has helped you survive the last two and a half years? I know exactly what she would say. She would say, my church, my church, my church. That's what she wrote to me. What has helped you survive? She wrote, my church, with exclamation points. My church, my church, my church. I think that's a beautiful testimony of the ability of a church to minister to a person going through intense suffering. She's had to deal with her own heart, her own fear of man, her own control tendencies. We sent her to the doctor because of what was going on in her body. We're not physicians, so I don't know what to do with hives. <laughs> so we sent her to a doctor to get, her, get a physical, and uh, we got to find out what's going on and get a prescription, and her doctor gave her a prescription for the, the hives. We've taught her how to lament. Uh, there's a whole genre of psalms about lament. And so we've taught her how to write out lament psalms of just expressing her grief to the Lord. And that's a very biblical thing to do. I'm trying to demonstrate there's actually more in the Bible that I could ever utilize with one counselee. I've got so much in the Bible, uh, I don't understand those who would say, yeah, the Bible gives us kind of the general thinking, but we've got to work out the details with psychology. I don't get that. The more I think about the Bible and I meditate on it, and then I think, how do I, practic how do I help a counselee practically apply Isaiah 26 verses 3 to 5? I can think of a multitude of homework assignments that I could give counselees just from that one passage of Scripture. How do we help people in the uh, how do people in the Bible deal with their deep affliction? They have a radical trust in God. David, think of David. David was betrayed by his son. Imagine how horrific that was. He's betrayed by his son, and he's betrayed by his right-hand man, Ahithophel. Uh, there's some indication that maybe Psalm 62 is in that type of context. He's betrayed by people that were, he, his son, an advisor, and then you're reading David's thoughts and how he deals with that horrific suffering in Psalm 62. And one of the ways he deals with that intense, uh, horrible suffering is through intense prayer. He talks about pouring his heart out before God. So I want to teach my counselees when they've been betrayed and are going through intense suffering, uh, no weak prayers are allowed. We got a supplication. We got to teach people how to supplicate. God, how do you pour out your heart before God? Uh, and then what else do the psalmists do? They ask soul-searching questions. The psalmist, it's okay to ask soul-searching questions. I want to encourage my counselees to ask, where was God when my husband attacked me at 2 o'clock in the morning? She has to wrestle through that question if she's really going to get some peace in her soul. It is all right to ask those kind of questions. The, the psalmist ask why questions, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. I've heard it preached, you never ask God why. If that is true, Jesus sinned. Because on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalmist in Psalm 42 ask why uh, questions. Uh, we have, there's a difference between saying why God and why God. The psalmists are pleading for answers. Why? They're just trying to find out answers. So I want to teach my counselees how to ask questions properly, soul-searching questions. We worked hard on teaching her what it means to trust the God of the universe. Um, the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, Even When Life Hurts, has become a very important resource. A resource to her. Uh, she and her counselor did not avoid asking hard questions. <clears throat> We've worked on helping her live out the gospel. So I'm redeemed, I'm loved, I'm adopted, I'm a child of God, I must forgive, I must teach my girls to forgive. If I don't do this, it would be unwise. 
she had to really wrestle through, my husband is not truly saved. Uh, he professed faith in Christ, but he's not showing any evidence, so he is not a believer. Um, because of the future, I have a bright, because of the gospel, I have a bright future. Heaven looks more beautiful to Julie as she meditates on the gospel. She's disciplined her thinking with truth. That's really, so think about nightmares. What do you do about nightmares? I mean, we're vulnerable at night. People are having nightmares and you're vulnerable. You, I mean, you, how do you control a nightmare? Um, so that tells me I've got to really work hard on my thinking during the day because I'm vulnerable at night. I've got to really work hard on how do I get myself ready for bed? What am I doing? I call it sleep hygiene. What am I doing to get myself ready to go to sleep? Am I calming my soul down? Am I, if I'm an anxious person, am I learning to listen? I'm not watching the news. I'm not watching movies. Um, I am listening to worship music. I am reciting verses in my mind. I am singing worship songs in my mind. If I know I have a propensity to be anxious, I've got to work hard at getting myself ready for sleep because I'm vulnerable at night. People that have nightmares are vulnerable, so I have to work with them during the day on their, their thinking. What are you going to dwell on? She has filled her house. She found this app, and I'm not um, recommending it because I haven't used it, but she found this app that plays peaceful music called the Abide app, and it just plays nice, peaceful music, and then they have different like uh, themes. One is, might be anxiety. And they have songs that go along with a person's anxious, is anxious, and then they have verses of scripture. And so there's this nice, peaceful music that's playing. And then the person on the Abide app quotes passages of scripture, Psalms. And she just has this playing in her house all the time because she's trying to create an atmosphere of peace in her home because she has lived in so much turmoil. I've already talked about fighting fear with truth. Um, and I told you about when he showed up right behind her, what she said to herself, I need to stop running unless I or the girls are directly threatened. I must stand up to him knowing that the Lord's with me and promises to be my strength and my shield. And that's what went through her mind. <clears throat> and then she took the picture of him. Here's what her house looks like. So she has Bible verses plastered all over the bathroom. She just, she's keeping scripture in front of herself on a regular basis. And one of these is really cute. Um, this, these are notes. Oh, like here, here's her little daughter. Come on, don't give up, amen. <laughs> <laughs> so her little daughter's giving her pep talks about don't give up, mom, you can do it. This was one of the things she shared with me about a month ago when she was having, she was about to have a panic attack in the grocery store. And I mentioned he's supposed to be paying child support, but he quit his job so he wouldn't have to do it. So she's going through the grocery store and she's thinking, boy, this food is so expensive and I'm ill-equipped to provide. I was abandoned. No, wait, I left. I did this. I did this. This is my fault. But then I catch a glimpse of the cross on my arm. She has a tattoo. Or a post-it note covered in verses, or the Holy Spirit just calls me back, and I start saying, God is good. I'm safe. He loves me. He won't abandon me. He gives me what I need each day, so don't worry about tomorrow. My God fights for me. He's going to use this for a purpose. And she just reverses. She's worked hard on reversing her, her thinking. She's had to grow in wisdom that her husband's just a perpetual liar. I have to trust my counselors. I have to trust my church. I need to deal with my own heart. I've been a people pleaser. I've been a control freak. I've got to die to those things. I need to be aware of what's happening in my body, so I've got to work with my doctor. I've got to be tuned into sleep issues. I've already talked about that. How have we tried to help her as a church? We've provided a counselor. we provided a safe house. We provided church security. She's had multiple pastors caring for her. Our benevolence committee has helped her. I told you the story about the man who owns the dealership and how he helped her with a car. Uh, her friends and her small group, uh, they, we just had our summer camp for teenagers. 
and uh, her the women in her small group paid for her girls to go to summer camp. That was just a huge blessing for me to hear that her church was taking her friends in church were taking care of her. And we've been involved because his, her husband is under church discipline, and we've put him through a church discipline process. I actually think we have a, a system that at least rivals the world and is better than the world. Uh, I've been disappointed with the judicial system in Florida, by the way. Uh, that's one, another one of my takeaways from this is how he ought to be in jail. He should not even be out on the streets. Uh, how has com the doctrine of common grace, how has common grace been shown? Well, the police have helped. The doctrine of common grace is how can humans even survive? If we're totally depraved, we should be choking each other right now. You know, we ought to be killing each other if we're totally depraved. So why are we not killing each other? Well, first of all, we have saving grace and the Lord has changed our hearts. But why aren't people out on the streets just killing each other all the time? Well, God's restraining sin. That's part of the doctrine of common grace. That's the negative side. The positive side is he allows people to even make discoveries and do positive things. That's part of his doc the doctrine of common grace, like physicians who prescribe medicine for her, for her, for her hives and her anxiety, or the Hubbard House for abused women in Jacksonville, and the pro bono lawyer that they provided. Those are all evidences of God's common grace in her life. Our counselor, we're almost at the end here, and then I'll see what questions you have. Our counselor, Josie, has been phenomenal. She's gone to court with her. She's been up with her at night. She's been threatened by the husband. The husband sent threatening texts to her. Um, she has just shepherded this woman and walked alongside of her. She's been compassionate. She's shown sacrificial love. She's been patient. Josie's been saturated with truth. She's been trustworthy. She's demonstrated a mature walk with the Lord. Uh, she has been everything that I would hope that a female counselor would be to help, the, to help Julie. So what have I been doing? I have been doing a presentation that I think of, of as an apologetic. I've been doing apologetics with you, whether you realize it or not. I've been arguing. I'm, def I'm defending the faith here. I am trying to show you that a presuppositional approach to biblical counseling, that we have enough in the Bible to develop a complete counseling system. I don't need to, the, the term we've used for years in biblical counseling is integrate. I don't need to integrate, but I've, I've started using an even stronger term. I don't need to syncretize. Syncretism is a stronger term. Uh, I'm using syncretism more and more because I believe that the psychologies are philosophical belief systems. They are, they, they are more like religion than they are science. And I don't want to syncretize with another religion. I don't want to integrate with another religion. I want to live consistent within my belief system. So <clears throat> I've been doing a presentation to show you what a, using David Pallison's terms, what a radically biblical approach to trauma care might sound like. If we're confident in the Lord and his resources, we have a superior approach, not just an adequate approach. We have a superior approach to dealing with horrific suffering while being able to discerningly evaluate what the world is seeing. David Pallison wrote a book called Seeing Through New Eyes. And uh, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to read the trauma research the neuroscience research, but I want to see it through new eyes. I want to see it through biblical eyes. I think this is a teachable moment for evangelism in our world. If a book sells two million copies, you have to ask, why is our culture so interested right now? Well, we've been through a lot of suffering, the COVID years, and then you watch the evening news, and you got wars going on, and the economic news, and then the politicians who happily act, you know, they hate each other, and People are wondering what in the world is going on. So why is trauma literature so popular right now? It's a teachable moment in our culture. People are, our American culture is tuned into suffering. Actually, the world is tuned into suffering. I went to teach in Uganda back in January. I taught Introduction to Biblical Counseling. And my class there in Uganda 
one of the very first things they asked me was about Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. And I thought, oh my word, I can't escape that book. It's everywhere. It's even in East Africa. It's in Uganda. Uh, the world is thinking about crisis and suffering. This is a teachable moment for us to show, to tell the world we have hope. We have, a, we actually have a superior system. We have hope in the gospel. We have hope for heaven. We have hope that people can change. They don't have to be dominated by their, their suffering. So I'm urging you to think biblically. And what does that take to do that? It takes academic discipline and you gotta be committed, but I think it's worth the work uh, to do it.